Enjoy this recording taken from an unscripted live audio conversation on Mensa. That's M-E-N-T-Z-A. We are delighted to introduce a journey within our next session. Contemporary artist Oliver Fraser moved to India in 1989. Initially, she was a travel painter before appre- appre- apprenticing herself to miniature and pichuai arts from Jaipur. There she learned the language of fabulously rich, rigorous and intricate painting tradition which she has deeply drawn on. Combined with her great interest in yoga and meditation, Olivia has produced profound works, paintings that could be considered spiritual roadmaps to reflect a journey within. The Lotus, a defining motif, brings a live world of sensation in her paintings. Olivia's striking forays into the Indian art world finds luminous expression in her book, A Journey Within, an artistic journey with stunning works of meditative calm and beauty. Yashaswani Chandra is the author of The Tale of the Horse, a history of India on horseback. Her debut book as a single author, and she has previously co-edited Right of the Line, The President's Bodyguards, a volume on the household cavalry on the Indian head of state. I hand on the stage to Yashaswani. Thank you. Thank you. It's a huge pleasure for me to introduce Olivia Fraser because you don't often get a platform like this to express your admiration for a brilliant artist as well as a wonderful person. Uh, In 2019, while I was teaching a course on painting at Ashoka University, I invited Olivia to talk to my students because she's one of the very few Indian artists, I think I can call you an Indian artist, Um, who has successfully created a contemporary um, style based on historical Indian painting techniques. To that extent, her work is a link between the past and the present. And of course, my students found her talk revealing and inspiring. Olivia's journey as an artist is intrinsically connected to her life in India. It is the subject of this treasure of a book, the Journey Within, uh, published by Harper Collins, with an introduction by the great art historian B.N. Goswami, and the basis of her talk today. From initially producing atmospheric watercolors of the people and monuments she encountered on her travels, in a process that helped her immerse herself in India, she trained with master artists of the miniature and Pichwai schools in Rajasthan, Her paintings are deeply rooted in the materiality of Indian painting techniques. As she learned to make paper, use traditional pigments, and wield a squirrel hairbrush, she imparts a characteristic precision to her forms and varies between a soft and bold palette. She has been inspired by styles of folk, courtly, and sacred paintings alike, and is able to combine a large format with delicate lines. The result has been a unique range of art as the means to delve into different philosophical and cultural concepts. From the exchange of gaze between the deity as an idol and the devotee that is darshan, the multiplicity of divine presence in Krishna Leela, the worship of feet in different religious traditions, Buddhist ordering principles, Nath creation myths, the cosmic island of Jambudweep and the Himalayas, 
to the cow dust are the flowering of the lotus, the fruiting of the mango tree, and the quest of the bee. Her triptychs, in which the same subject matter appears in different colors, recreate changes in mood, time, and season. Increasingly, her style has become abstracted, although many of her lead motifs remain the same, as does the lyricism. To depict the metaphysical concepts that underlie her practice of yoga and meditation, including the importance of visualization and breathing, and the various stages of awakening. Even though the influence of the op artist Bridget Riley can be seen in these works, they remain Indian in spirit. She, see, she sees her paintings as spiritual roadmaps towards a journey within. To me, her paintings are serene and sublime, yet alive with feeling and depth of understanding. So without further ado, I give to you Olivia Darenberg. Can you? <laughs> Can you hear me? Yes. Thank you all for coming. Um, how do I work this? Has that worked? Where do I point this? There. I first moved to Delhi in 1989, clasping a newly published book called The Passionate Quest. It was a glossy, hardback coffee table book written by Mildred Archer and Toby Falk about the art and adventures in India in the early 19th century of my Scottish kinsmen, James and William Fraser. How do I do the pointer? Just say next. Yeah, well done. James Bailey Fraser was a great landscape artist. That was his painting just now. And during the early years of the 19th century, he painted a wonderful <clears throat> and hugely popular series of engravings and lithographs of the Himalayas and the cityscapes of Calcutta, like this one, which are now found in every club and hotel across India. Next. His brother, William, was the British ambassador in Delhi, or rather, the representative of the East India Company, as India was then ruled through a for-profit corporation. This is a painting of him when he arrived in Calcutta, looking quite Scottish from the nose upwards and slightly Indian from the moustache downwards. Um, and this was during the period of the white Mughals, when some, some East India Company employees living in India had assimilated themselves into Indian culture, learning the languages, dressing in local costume, eating local food, and marrying Indian wives. William Fraser was one of the most flamboyant white Mughals, to the amazement of his brother, who recorded his every eccentricity in letters back home, with perhaps the most interesting aspect of this, to my mind, being the extraordinary watercolors which James asked William to commission from Delhi artist. Next. 
like this painting called The Six Recruits. The man dressed in yellow on the left, wearing um, the uniform for the regiment called Skinner's Horse, set up by Fraser and his best friend, Colonel James Skinner. These paintings formed what has become the famous Fraser album, the great masterpiece of a hybrid form of late Mughal art, which is sometimes called company school painting, portraying the different types of people and their jobs, crafts or castes against stark white backgrounds. This form of painting where Indian artists created something that mixed techniques and ideas from the East and the West has greatly influenced me and was the starting point for all my work. Next. So I set about painting people that I met on my travels, inspired by the depictions in the Fraser album. So this, this is a group of people I encountered on the highway in Haryana, actually very close to where Colonel Skinner had his house. Next. This is Saftarjung's tomb in Delhi. I used watercolor, then a new medium for me. I used to work in very thick, pasty oils beforehand. Um, and I also painted architectural elevations like this one, wanting to continue again where my forebear had left off, um, painting the monuments of Delhi and elsewhere as I led a very itinerant life. James actually wrote in his diary at the time that he, he painted you know, lots of images of Calcutta and he was about to paint Delhi, but he never got around to it. Um, watercolor seemed to suit the Indian climate perfectly. It was easy to transport, could reflect the miasmic hazes of heat and dust with its diaphanous nature. And I enjoyed the game of how quickly pools of color would dry and bleed into each other depending on the heat of the day. Next. This is the entrance to the tomb, to Safshang's tomb. Here again, you can see I was, I was thrilled with the dazzling colors and shapes of the architecture around me. Each morning I would get up early and go out and find a place to sit on street corners, in parks, sometimes sitting in my very patient taxi, and I would sketch. Painting as a solo woman in India had its challenges. Often I would get far too much unwanted attention. So I learned to get my taxi driver to act as my guard and fin them off. Uh, ne next. Then I saw the miniature paintings in the National Museum in Delhi. I was thrilled by the gem-like colors, the detailed brushwork, the iterative patterning and the burnished surfaces but I was also attracted to the confidence of the iconography, the symbolism, and the meanings behind the use of color, shape, and infinitely fine line. So I started creating my own miniature paintings in watercolor. This one is an example, and it's called, I called it Delhi Panorama, using the architecture I had sketched, stretching from St. James's Church uh, on the left, which was built by Skinner in the old city, all the way across a whole lot of buildings, which I can't see, I haven't got my glasses on, um, to, to the right, which is, has got Gurgaon. I think there's the Jama Masjid, 
Jesus is above um, above the church. I put all different gods. The Kaaba has um, the Kaaba is above the Jama Masjid. Guru Nanak, I think, is above. I'm not quite sure. Maybe uh, somewhere in the center of Delhi. The Buddha is about is above Rashtrapati Bhavan because of the dome. Um, and then there's Shiva and Vishnu above the wonderful Lotus Temple because of the Lotus associated, and Lakshmi above Gurgaon. And the gods are raining blossoms down in the city where I've lived for so long. Next one, please. This is called Singing the Fud. This is my final painting uh, in watercolor, where I was aiming for the intensity of color seen in Indian miniatures with multiple washes of watercolor. This was a performance of the FUD, which is, um, excuse my pronunciation in Rajasthan, which is <clears throat> a rural Rajasthani mobile temple, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. The religious, <clears throat> a religious scroll painting depicting the epic story of Papuji, 14th century folk, um, heroic folk deity, which is used as a backdrop and aid memoir for the performers, the Bopas, who sing the deity's story. The song can last anything up to eight hours, um, and devotees, mainly from the Rabari nomadic camel herding community, make offerings and pray for cures for their animals. I painted the, the artist, Sri Lal Joshi, on the left, looking out at us, his audience, while the performers, the Bopi and Bopa, merge with the Papuji backdrop, which has been reduced to just a few essential elements, including many eyes. Eyes are the last thing painted on the canvas, and once the final deity's eyes are complete, the Fad is said to become divine and to be filled with the spirit of Papuji. Um, next. In 2004, on returning to live in India with my family in tow, I was determined to actually master the traditional techniques of, so I apprenticed myself to a miniature painting workshop in Jaipur. I would spend hours watching and listening to the master painter, Ajay Sharma, as he managed to make his studio materials a microcosm of the world outside, channeling it into his work, relating how he used a sap, a certain sap from a particular tree outside his front door, or a chalk white kadia from the cliffs around Jaipur, local flower petals soaked and distilled for their color, or soot from his oil lamp to make the black kajal excellent for fine line work. Ajay, like many of the Jaipur miniature painters, was from a family who worked in the gem industry. The gem and painting world being closely connected as semi-precious stones are used for painting. Ajay taught me about grinding and mixing pigments to their correct consistency. I learned how to make handmade paper or vasli, binding the thin sheets together, priming and burnishing them with an agate stone. What I enjoyed most was using the single-haired squirrel brushes these have a natural spring and curve at the tip, which together with the almost meditational concentration required for this genre, facilitates the drawing 
of perfect miniature circles and spirals. This was the first painting I did using these techniques. It's called Diwali, and it's actually a little bit of a hybrid because I was chasing a cow outside my front door in Delhi, and then I put him in a, a slightly flatter landscape, um, but using lovely malachite, that soft green is the malachite and the, and the, and the karia, and that bright red, is, is all, they're all stone colors. Next. When I came across Srinachi paintings from the Nathadwara tradition, I became fascinated by the philosophy and the spiritual aspect underpinning this painting tradition. The sacred geometry, structure, color, symbolism, the fact that like Byzantine icons, these artworks were objects of worship or devotion. A piece of serendipity led me to discover an art studio in Delhi where giant pitchwise on linen were being created. Pitchwise are temple backdrops for icons of Srinachi in his eighth incarnation, Krishna. And this was one of them, the Maharasalila from the studio of Banuji. Sitting on the floor with the other studio craftsmen, all playing their part in the vast pitchwai, I learned through a process of osmosis I became obsessed by the rigor of the traditional Indian miniature painting process, particularly this Nadvara-inspired sacred art. It involved a different way of seeing. There was only one way to paint a banana leaf. You didn't go out and sketch from life, so much as reach for its essence. It was an internal form of perception rather than an external one about knowing and seeing rather than the more Western gaze of estimating and looking. Next. <clears throat> this is called Dance of the Peacocks. And so I would sit beside the studio craftsman painting my own Natadvara-inspired artwork like this one, where I've depicted Srinachi in a sacred space surrounded by dancing peacocks which is one of the visual tropes associated with the god. I was fascinated to learn the language here and the visual vocabulary of this sacred form of painting. Pitchwise and miniature paintings share the same techniques and have the same studio practice. So initially, I continued painting on a miniature small scale, but after a few years, I too started working on a pitchwise scale, in feet rather than in inches. Pitchwise are bound by strict iconographic rules with sacred geometry and proportion integral to the symbolic meaning and structure of the whole. So for example, Srinachi's uh, features are based on the original Svarupa, the deity housed in the shrine at Nathadvara, which all have a sacred geometry or proportion to them. Next. Likewise, in my series of paintings called Krishna 1, next, 2, two next, and 3, I use sacred geometry to dictate the height of the mango, mango tree in relation to the cows, underpinning the design with a division of seven, 
a number replete with sacred associations, like, for instance, the seven images of Krishna in the Pushti Marg, or the Path of Grace. I was excited by the idea of a sacred landscape, in the same way as the crucifix has become an instantly recognizable symbol of Jesus for, Christ, for Christian devotion. So there are various trees associated with and symbolic of Krishna, like this mango tree. And here I've made a triptych using different colors. The original color for the first one, then the gold color, and then this one, which is Srinachi's blue, to add to this depiction of the divinity. Uh, next. This is called I See Him Now. Um, there is a wonderful poem by the 9th century Tamil poet Namalvar. Lotus-eyed, he is in my eyes. I see him now, for his eyes cleanse my sight, and all five senses are his bodies. Ancient India used numbers to organize information about and access an understanding of creation and of the divine. Even today, numbers still have huge symbolic potency and significance, particularly in their association with the sacred. And so in this painting, I'm interested in the, in the idea of creating a yantra, a sacred space, through color and repetition, again around the number seven, using the archetypal shapes of the circle and the square, and deconstructing the iconography of Srinachi's face, inspired, as I frequently am, by poetry. Next. <clears throat> this is called darshan. Continuing the subject of vision, the word darshan means to see and be seen by the deity. It is a fundamental concept within Hindu worship where there is an active engagement between image and viewer. John Berger talked about the reciprocal nature of vision, and here I've translated it into the physical attribute of the eyes. In Indian sacred art, eyes, whether in the sculpted bronze effigies of gods, folk imagery on fads, like the ones I was showing you above, or painted images on pitchwise, the eyes are always the final element to be added to the icon. And once the eyes are opened, the image is believed to pull in the deity as laid down by the Vedic texts and become divine. Devotees that can then come, lock eyes with the image and perform darshan. Over the years, I keep returning to eyes as I'm fascinated by the idea of a vision exchange and of a vision within, a whole landscape within. Next. This is called dusk. There's this wonderful phrase associated with dusk, known as the cow dust hour, or Gorduli Bela, when the cows return home, kicking up the dust of the desert, just as the sun is setting. And so, continuing my Srinachi-inspired work, here I've painted cows in Krishna's colors, as he was a cowherd, both the dark indigo of his Srinachi coloring and the lighter blue traditionally used when depicting him as a young man. Here I was interested in playing with perspective. I've raised and recessed the vasli, the paper, to create the central circular moon shape. You can't quite see it in the image, but the, the circle is, is recessed. And I was thinking about the process of painting, 
with the lines leading into the form. And I've repeated the cow imagery vertically, as is often traditionally done, emphasizing the possibly infinite pattern this creates through color. Next. In 2008, I went to the US to see an amazing show put on by the Freer Sackler called The Garden and the Cosmos. There I saw Maharaja Man Singh's Jodhpuri Commission paintings, like this one, from the early 19th century. Inspired by the Nat yogic tradition, these were monumental miniatures, each around five to six foot in length. I felt I was witnessing something profoundly relevant and eternal. Themes inspired by the scriptures have been used throughout art history, but this was a particularly Indian art vocabulary, which seemed to have universal and contemporary resonance. The monumental fields of color making up the cosmic oceans with the esoteric concepts and dreamlike intensity preempted 20th century artists like Rothko, Howard Hodgkin, or Sol Lewitt. The Jodhpuri paintings were the final piece in the jigsaw for me and helped me develop what has become my current style, allowing me to cross-fertilize this tradition with ideas from the 20th century or contemporary art with which, bizarrely, they had so much in common. Next. So back to my art. This is called Creation. There's a line in the Rig Veda describing creation. The sun drew forth its rays between the earth and the sky. Here I wanted to translate this idea and make an archetypal shape with the cosmic egg representing the beginning of the world being divided by the sun and breaking in two. I painted the seven sacred seas of salt water, milk, yogurt, ghee, sharab, sugarcane juice, and pure water where the liquid has increasingly spiritual, purified connotations, and I've reflected them in the seven heavens above. Next. This is a rather large work, and it's called Pilgrimage. Um, I have made many treks up into the Himalayas, following the paths of pilgrims in India to the source of the Ganges, to Mount Kedarnath, and so on. Footprints signifying holy presence have circulated throughout Buddhist, Hindu, Jain, and Islamic contexts for centuries. The foot as a symbol has grown out of the tradition of touching the feet of a revered person as a mark of respect from Chela to Guru. And even in the Christian context, this is recognized with Christ's feet being washed by Mary. As the foot represents the lowest, humblest part of the body, so it reflects a recognition of worship from the lowest to the highest. There is a tradition of assisting yoga practitioners to focus by providing visual roadmaps to spiritual enlightenment. These take many different forms, ranging from mandalas and yantras, geometric images using archetypal shapes which are believed to store and generate positive energies, <clears throat> to maps of the subtle body, which represent the idea of the body as a microcosm of the universe. Combining both these ideas in pilgrimage, I am using a part of my own body, an iterated template of my feet, 
to explore the idea of a roadmap to salvation. It is a metaphysical landscape with the triangular repetition of feet. I think there are 108 feet here. Um, representing a sacred mountain and also representing Shiv Shakti, the male-female principle with the counterbalancing upside-down golden Shakti uh, triangle in the center. And I've used the color red as the background to my golden feet as this is associated with worship. Continuing with my exploration of sacred numbers, there are 108 feet, a particularly auspicious number, as are the numbers nine and three. I divided up the work into nine segments to emphasize this, and within those nine segments, a journey or pilgrimage to enlightenment can be read. There are three levels in my numerology of pilgrimage, with the sacred symbols inscribed, I don't know whether you can see, but each, the feet all have little symbols inscribed in them. <clears throat> um, on the lowest level, reflecting earthly concerns, music, literature, war, etc. The sacred symbols in the middle segment of the picture are associated with worship, religion, temples, and so on. And the symbols in the highest segment are almost abstract, with the two being, the top two being Om and Shri, creating the sound believed to represent the fundamental wavelength of the universe. Next. This is called <coughs> Jambudvipa, <coughs> um, map for lost souls. Over the last few years, the news has been dominated by migration, with people all over the world moving from one continent to another to escape war, religious intolerance, famine or climate change in search of peace and better lives. The news is full of the tragedy of migrations where too many are, mo are moving too fast and the world, its people, and its landscape can't cope. As John Berger again said, to emigrate is always to dismantle the center of the world, and so to move into a lost, disorientated one of fragments. Perhaps it was particularly the idea of the hostile landscape, or rather seascape, the Mediterranean Sea, engulfing endless migrant boats. That was when I was painting this one that above all struck me and influenced me to create this work. In Jain, Buddhist, and Hindu cosmology, Jambudvipa, Rose Apple Tree Island, is the island or continent of the terrestrial world, world where ordinary human beings live. Surrounded by the Lavana Samudra, or salty ocean, whose swirling movement is regulated by the four tides from the four directions, north, south, east, and west, traditionally depicted as pots. Jambudvipa is the only place where one can achieve enlightenment and as such provides an opportunity for salvation, for peace, for relief. I have created a cosmological map as a form of abstract yantra where the central bindu, the Jambudvipa, is the focal point surrounded by the frothing, fragmenting, iterating waves of the salty ocean. Here I was interested in paring down, pulling apart, and exploring traditional imagery, sacred form, and color. In this age of tragedy and horror without, this is perhaps a map to seek consolation and peace within. Next. This is called Himalaya. I was interested here by the 
Russian 20th century pioneer of abstract art, Kazimir Malievich. His concept of suprematism sought to move art as far as possible away from depicting natural forms and establish the supremacy of pure feeling and spirituality. But where Malievich condensed his vision to plain color fields, famously his black and white squares, I'm interested in relating this archetypal imagery back to India. Here the square is related to the tantric concept earth within the five elements. I consider patterning as fundamental depicting, to depicting pure feeling and the spiritual. And so in this painting, I wish to explore the feeling of being up in the mountains. The Himalayas have many, have many ancient pilgrimage ways and I've journeyed up a few of these where the gods, in particular Lord Shiva, are said to reside. Here I have used shape, monochrome color, and the traditional imagery associated with mountainous landscape, deconstructing it and reducing it to its essence to try and convey this feeling of distance and vertigo within a sacred space. Traditional Indian painting is dominated by images of human interaction whether of gods, of rulers, of holy men, or just ordinary folk. The celebrated art historian B.N. Goswami, whose session was supposed to be now, but sadly can't make it, um, writing about landscape said, painters constantly refer to nature, drawing upon its details to echo human emotions, branches drooping, streams in flood, trees ablossom, rocks piled one upon another and the like. But seldom, if ever, does nature come to occupy the foreground. I'm interested in making nature, this background, the subject matter of my work. Exploring the traditional vocabulary of landscape, trees, flowers, sky, water, mountains, and so on, and investigating its ability in itself to communicate a sense of rasa or sentiment or flavor so central to this tradition. Next. This is the golden lotus. This lotus changed the way I painted and changed my iconography. From here on, I started looking inwards and yoga became my subject matter. I practiced yoga in Delhi with an art disciple steeped in the tantric tradition from which the Jodhpuri paintings emerged, where the lotus plays a key part in a personal practice fashion. With yoga's current global popularity as a, fish, as a fitness regime and a means towards a perfect body, it's easy to forget its ancient historical roots in India, which revealed yoga to have a far more wide-ranging spiritual and philosophical practice and meaning. The word yoga comes from the Sanskrit term meaning union and is etymologically linked to the English word yoke. It is about connecting the mind, body, and soul and harnessing the senses in an ever-flowing ever movement towards liberation or the absolute, which in yogic philosophy lies as much within the body as without. One of the pathways to achieving this is meditation and visualization, using images from the landscape, in particularly lotuses, and linking them with the metaphysical. This is partly to shut out everyday thoughts and emotions, but also as an aid in themselves to propelling one's focus forwards and upwards. I've chosen to emphasize the sacral ritual aspect to this practice by using gold leaf and also to represent the golden chakra, heart chakra, the malachite circle 
while evidently connected to the physical idea of a lotus leaf, has metaphysical connotations as halos for emperors and maharajas have frequently depicted this color. Also, the archetypal shapes of the circle within the square has associations with heaven on earth, sacred geometry and yantras. The next. This is called awakening. Hands speak to us with the eloquence of silence. Since the Mesolithic era, handprints have been made on cliff walls and in caves, like signatures suggesting emerging consciousness. I remember being very struck by the power of a group of molded and painted sati hands inside the Jodhpur fort in, in fort. They were the hand imprints of the wives of the Maharaja Man Singh, who were following a traditional practice later banned by the British of self-immolating on his funeral pyre. Ancient sati or hero stones also represent the hand of the departed with four petal lotus within the palm to suggest sacrifice, eternity, and devotion. I wanted to use this icon of shocking female sacrifice and disempowerment and using my own hand try and eke out more positive life-affirming spiritual associations using the lotus within. I've used my hands and my feet in many paintings as parts of the body that have both devotional, practical, and iconic resonance. Along with eyes, they can be used as tools along spiritual paths for transformation. In this instance, the changing lotus chakras within the hand could perhaps provide a roadmap to focus on within the state of con consciousness and awakening. Next one. This is called chakra. Here I wanted to show movement, which is so essential to meditation. I've deconstructed the blue lotus chakra to a single petal and influenced by op art's rhythmic patterning and optical illusions with a deep bow to the op art genius that is Bridget Riley. Here I am keen to re reach for a more Indian essence, exploring the idea of the movement of breath and the movement paradoxically inherent at the still center of meditation as one's focus rises up through the body. Movement and stillness are oppositional concepts, but both are fundamental to the practice of meditation and even to the practice of miniature painting itself, where you have to zone out into an almost medita meditative state to create the tiny repetitive brush strokes with the shading or portage ever aiming, ever aiming for a lightness. Next. Yeah. This and the next one. These two, I'm thinking about the idea of sensation and movement. There is a meditational asana where the breath is visualized, serpent time spiraling up and down the body. I painted ever increasing, decreasing, spiraling lotuses. Next. Uh, yeah, and then the, this is a sequence. Next. If you can open these up, there's eight of them. In this work, I have portrayed the cosmic bodies of the moon as exploring, exploding, multiplying a thousand petal lotuses to reflect the sensation of the pulse, rhythm, and movement associated with yogic meditation, linking the lotus with the cosmos, the lotus within, the lotus without, cosmos without. Next. This, in, in, 19, in 2017, the Nobel Prize of Physics was given to scientists who had just proven the existence of gravitational waves. There was a spectacular light show in the heavens with two neutron stars, um, and they had a collision called a kilonova and consequently produced highly visible gravitational waves, cosmic energy in the form of ripples within the fabric of space and time. So I was fascinated by this and by the fact that a kilonova is supposed to create gold. Next. 
Um, there's, there's six, seven of these. Can you open them? This series of paintings explores the idea of breath, which is fundamental to Hatha Yoga and is particularly central to the practice of meditation. Using the image of a lotus as an in inner focus, you watch or witness the flow of the inward and outward breath, all the while in visualizing an opening and shutting lotus. They are each on a monumental scale, just short of a meter in height. And this one is a, a final one called pause. Just as there is a continuous movement of the breath within yoga, there's also breath control, which is considered one of, uh, to enable one of yoga's highest aims, but in its basic form as a purification technique. There's a wonderful extract from the Sanskrit, from an 18th century Sanskrit text called the Geranda Samhita. Through breath control, the yogi gets the ability in the, to, in the ether. Through breath control, diseases are destroyed. Th through breath control, the goddess Shakti is awakened. Through breath control, the mind enters the supramental state. Bliss arises in the mind, and the practitioner of breath control becomes happy. Next. This is putting them all together. Next. These are on a very large sort of architect architectural um, scale. Um, using the idea of the sacred triptych. Next, um, this is called Stala Padma. The Garanda Samhita has a beautiful description of the sevenfold pathway to perfection, where the yogi is told to visualize an ocean of nectar, in the middle of which there is an island of jewels. In every direction there are kadamba trees and abundant flowers, and is ringed with a thick kadambari forest like a stockade, where the scents of Malata, Malika, Jati, Champa, Parijata, and Stala Padma flowers, perfume, every quarter. Having learned a very visual form of yoga with visualizations used as tools for meditation, visualizations using color and imagery culled from the garden, flowers, trees, animals, I was intrigued and excited to learn about scent also being a focus for meditation. Along with the expected various forms of jasmine, the Stala Padma flower was one of the seven mentioned perfume flowers. Translated as land lotus, some sources say that it changes color during the course of the day. Traditional Indian scents are oil-based, and when applied to the skin, the perfumes amplify and intensify, reflecting the body's temperature over the course of the day. Here I'm interested in exploring visually the idea of ever-increasing scent, the essence of a lotus, reflected in an ever-increasing saturation of the color pink. Next, now we've got bees. This is called Scent of the Lotus. I became interested in beekeeping at this time, and you can see it reflected in my paintings. I love the idea that all the senses are harnessed during meditation, including the sense of smell. Here I was interested in trying to merge the bees and the lotus to create a union of these opposites, something active and something passive, through repetitive patterning and illusory movement and stillness, exploring the Indian artistic concept of rasa. I've got to go. Oh, God. <laughs> I've got to clear up. Um, should we just have the next one, final one? This one is called Brahmri, and again, it's, it's about trying to bring out the sense of, of, uh, of sound, the sound of the bee. Slowly draw in the air and perform Brahmri Kumbhaka. Exhale it slowly, and then the sound of the bee will arise. On hearing the sound of a bee from within, lead the mind there. Samadhi will occur, together with the bliss arising from the realization, I am that. The sound of the bees coming from the vibration of their wings in flight so I painted this sequence with ever more densely packed bees and wings flying towards the central lotus to reflect a meditative reverberating sound, an ever-increasing hum and buzz of the bee, where the end result is perhaps a flower 
wings and petals, seemingly interchangeable. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Olivia. That was mesmerizing. I think we have time for maybe one or two questions. So um, does anybody have any questions for Olivia? Hi, Olivia. First of all, I'm in an awe of your paintings and your creative process. Uh, you mentioned about how watercolor as a medium suits Indian climate. So you talked about watercolor as a medium, right? So is there uh, some linkage with your thought process and the medium you choose according to the uh, purpose of your paintings? Do purpose of your painting decide the medium you do them in? Yes. Um, I mean, I was, I was, that was one of the things that really excited me coming to live in India was, you know, I'd come with a, I'd come with a pack of watercolors with all my massive box of, of oil, oil paints and all the rest of it. And um, they were all in plastic packaging, metal pla packaging. It, they, they felt very, I mean, it was lovely to work with them and watercolor was exciting to work with. But when I discovered that you could really see you, you know, the connection between paints, colors, binding materials, um, landscape, um, gems, all the rest of it. When I could see that that connected you to where you were, which I found out and discovered when I moved to India, when I came to Jaipur in particular, um, because I learned with these Jaipur people. Um, and that was what really thrilled me. And that's what absolutely dictates, in a way, what I paint because I'm, I, I restrict my palette and I, um, I restrict it to certain you know, stone pigments and indigo I love and I can't get enough of gold leaf, which is, um, I can't get enough of it, <laughs> I love using it. Um, and then there's liquid gold as well. And you go and again, you go in the streets of Jaipur. I don't know whether you're from here, but there's just the back streets and you see the, 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 um, the work, you know, the people making the, the gold or the silver leaf, and, and also making the um, what's called hilkari, um, which is the liquid gold. It's a whole sort of system. It's all, it, there's such a connection between, it's not sort of this, I found it sort of very distant in, in, the, in the UK, uh, and here, that's what, one of the things that really inspires me. Thank you. I think you have a question. Thank you, Olivia, for, thank you for exposing us to the wonderful paddles. A quick question. I joined the presentation midway, so you will forgive me if you've already explained it. Uh, have you, do you get the ideas of drawing these beautiful paddles, say, between the Brahmari and your paintings during the course of your meditations? And I mean, I noticed you mentioned the uh, Nobel Prize and, you know, the scientific advancements is also inspiring you. But I just wanted your thoughts on you know, how the ideas occur and how do you sort of translate them into paintings? Do you sort of do it on a day-to-day -day or, uh, you know, you just get the idea after the meditation and then you translate it into the painting? Thank you. Uh, thank you for that question. I wish it was as simple as that. <laughs> um, it seems to ha happen. I was telling Sashmi earlier, you know, I never know whether I'm ever going to paint another painting ever again. Um, <laughs> when I finished one, I don't know whether another one's going to happen. 
Um, but um, it does, and it happens in a variety of ways, and I try and get into that mode and zone and clear up the mess I've made from the previous painting and then get into it. And sometimes I have ones concurrent, you know, I'm painting concurrently. But some, yes, definitely some of them are from um, meditation, 100%, and the eyes, definitely. That's, that's something that I find that's there. And then I, I mean, there are various ones that um, you see in my book. Um, and it's, it's, it's partly, I mean, it's a lot of it, this, all this recent work, as I was saying, is my yoga teacher. And, you know, it's, it's also how she's uh, enabled me. You know, you're enabled through your own self, but also through other people suggesting things, suggesting colors, suggesting, and what, you know, and it, within the tradition itself, and when you read the poetry, it's, it's a combination, isn't it? It's a, um, a combination also of reading the Vedas, reading poetry that could be have been written yesterday, or it's a whole lot of things, going for a walk, that kind of thing it happens. Enjoyed this? Download the Mensa app and start your own live audio conversation.